Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Silvatis podcast. So I'm really excited to have Josh Fing Brown on the podcast today. So if, if some of you have been listening for a while, you'll have known that we actually recorded our first podcast together back in February last year. And so much like a Marvel superhero sort of cinematic universe, this is going to be the sequel to that. Um, and in the first podcast, so thank you so much for coming back, Josh, I have to say. No, it's a pleasure to be here. And very much like that sequel, we talked a lot about sort of the theory of pain and the evolution of pain and those deception and things like that in our first podcast. And there was just so much to talk about. I thought we needed to do another one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah, and it's been quite a journey for me since we did our last podcast as well. I've been uh, on a six month sabbatical, so not working, just kind of diving into myself and trying to find out more about me so um it's really nice to have this moment to reflect on what's changed over the last year you know definitely and i will ask you about that just from a personal point of view i'm so interested in what you got up to when you were away not treating because it's always this, this this fancy that i have about what would i do if i wasn't doing what i'm doing now <laughs> yes um but one of the things that I did want to talk about, and we'll talk a little bit later about it, perhaps, is you are actually doing a course on treating pain, um, and that's going to be running in September in London. Is that right? So the course that will be running in September is a progression from my dissertation that I wrote for my pain management degree. And the subjects that we'll be covering are pain, of course, but from a evolutionary and predictive processing perspective. The evolutionary component that we'll talk about will look at how neurons evolved and the uh, mechanisms for which pain has been communicated ever since we were jellyfish, right up until human beings. And that is looking really at the nociceptive component of pain from that evolutionary perspective. Um, so we will then look at the perceptual component of pain which is very relevant for us as human beings as we have very complex perceptions. And we'll be tying the predictive processing model for perception into our understanding of pain and then applying that directly to each other um, and within a, a kind of classroom setting to our techniques so that we can really understand how we can use these quite theoretical concepts practically to help our patients who are experiencing pain. Um, and I'm really excited about it. Love you to all come along. Me too. I think I'm already signed up. And this is not a plug, by the way. Like, I don't think <laughs> a free course or anything out of this. But um, I'm just so interested in in the way you think and, and your perspective on it and, and all the wealth knowledge that you bring um, to the area. But I'm interested in what happened, sort of, what's been happening since the last time we talked. So you mentioned that yeah. you've taken some time off. Um, what changed for you or what <laughs> well, so uh, the reason I was taking time off is because I'd been in the process of therapy for some time. And I, through that process of therapy, had, um, I started it because I recognized that there was some memories in my childhood that were causing my whole system to shut down. Um, some instances that my parents mentioned about what happened when I was little. Um, and I was reading about the polyvagal theory at the time, learning about the fight, flight, freeze, and faint response. Faint response being playing dead like mice when they get like overwhelmed by a cat, they can't escape, so they play dead. Um, and I noticed myself well, during these conversations going into complete shutdown. My heart rate would lower. My whole system would feel very tired. I'd want to like uh, collapse. My thought processes would slow down. It's like an overactivation of the parasympathetics. So I was like, right, okay, I've got some shit in my, in my past that I need to deal with. And I need some time to be able to do that. And so I took the time. Um, and the first thing that I did after I stopped work in February was I went to Peru 
um, and I went and did an ayahuasca ceremony in the jungle for 10 days. Um, and it was, I chose that, that kind of intervention, first of all, because my therapist had also done that same thing and recommended the shaman. It felt very safe. Um, but also because I know that the mechanism of action of psychedelics is to help to integrate different parts of the brain that have previously been separated through the process of suppression. Um, and so I was noticing I couldn't access the emotional content around some of the memories that I've been having. And I knew that that was likely gonna not allow me to avoid that emotional content anymore. And I was absolutely right about that. <laughs> It really allowed me to connect with myself in a very physical sense and be able to express emotions that previously had been stunted in their expression. Um, and then I spent the rest of the six months trying to integrate those experiences, really. Um, and it was extremely valuable. I'm very, very glad that I did it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think part of what we'll talk about today is the relationship between trauma and pain. Um, and I'll see if I can draw upon some of my personal experience of working with trauma to inform that that discussion on some of the science and practical applications. Yeah, and thank you for sharing that, by the way, um, because I think a lot of us have this idea of, of being able to stop what we're doing and put our mental health as a priority, and not a lot of us do that, to be honest, myself included. Um, there are times where I've been thinking maybe this isn't the job I need to be doing right now or mm. I need to step away. And so for you to be able to do that, I think, is really inspiring. Mm. Well, I think a lot of us in the caring professions are very good at prioritizing others' needs over our own. Um, and this is something that I think is worth mentioning at this point is that I was certainly in that position, but I recognized that I was in that position because actually growing up, my parents hadn't been that well, like they had certainly suffered a lot in their lives and that had led them to not be able to um, experience a lot of the emotions that they had. So for example, um, uh, crying was not really acceptable for my father um, because of his relationship with his family and um, therefore when I was experiencing things like sadness as a child and when I was experiencing like a real physical expression of the abuse that had happened it wasn't able to be seen quite literally that my parents couldn't see that I was expressing in a physical way, in a nonverbal way, um, that I was like suffering a lot. And that's because for them, when they were growing up, those expressions of those same emotions, and I believe it was very similar, had not been permitted in their relationships, not allowed to cry. This is not like stop doing this, behave. And so in order to maintain your attachment relationships as a child, in order to survive, because you need your parents to survive, it's more important to suppress your own expressions that compromise that relationship. And in the act of suppression, we suppress the awareness of those things in ourselves. So when I was growing up, I learned that certain things that I was experiencing weren't okay to be expressed. I couldn't express them. And I also learned that actually I need to take care of my parents because they're also suffering because I could see their suffering. And when I was taking care of my parents, when I was taking care of my sister, I was praised. Oh, well done for taking care of your sister. That's so great. You're such a good big brother. You're so good at this. And so I learned very early on a relationship between self-value in the form of recognition from the, my caregivers and taking care of other people. Uh, and that was a way for me to be recognized and remain attached. Um, so that kind of process led me to constructing a value judgment based upon my own self around taking care of others. I am seen and I am valued when I take care of other people. So it's conditional. 
and recognizing that I was like oh damn okay so that's why I feel this compulsion to take care of people I feel driven towards it beyond the compulsion to take care of myself actually the, the learning is oh myself is not able to be recognized so I need to suppress that and I need to take care of people to be recognized so therefore it's very easy to put myself first in that situation which is another reason I had to take time off because I recognized that I was like wow I can't ignore that anymore okay damn I need to this is not something I need, can continue with and that narrative is so true for a lot of people in the caring sort of profession whether you're an osteopath or any other medical professional or not even not even necessarily a medical person someone caring for somebody else yeah. and the thing that I'm struck with when when you shared that was that you know you must have been really young yeah happened and to take yeah. that on as a, as a child that that's that's a lot yeah yeah for sure that's that's how it was yeah and I'm wondering then, one of the things that you talked about in the previous podcast was around attachment mm. and its relationship to things like oxytocin. Mm. Mm. I wonder if you, and we had so many DMs about this, by the way. Okay, um, yeah. I wondered, and they were asking me, and I'm like, look, I'm not the expert. I have no idea. Let's ask Josh. Um, I wonder if you could maybe elaborate a little bit about that, because you've talked about sort of attachment just now, and I'm thinking, what's that relationship yeah. between attachment and oxytocin? And you also yeah. talked about addiction as well. Um, yeah. and, how can, um, and how that can manifest. Yeah, yeah. So this is a really wonderful segue also into the discussion about pain too. So um, reading, reading this book, actually, and I highly, highly recommend it. Jack Panaksep and Lucy Bivens, Neuro, uh, The Archaeology of the Mind it talks about our basal ganglia, our affective systems, which are really, really low down in our brain. Um, and they're present in all mammals. And it talks about what these kind of really fundamental primary systems are, uh, what kind of behaviors and what kind of um, responses come from those. And one of them is the care system. So in mammals, when we're born, we're born helpless and we need to be cared for in order to survive. And that care comes in the form of physical proximity, touch, um, and it comes in the form of, um, yeah, needing to be fed and needing to be regulated by the parent. So it seems that mammals have a, a, an attachment system within their brain, a system by which when an attachment system, like mother is, it goes away, then the baby cries. And this is true for human beings, this is also true for most other mammals and birds too, actually birds have an attachment system as well. And um, the proximity of the mother the touch, the affective touch that is given by the mother. Um, and I speak about the mother as the caregiver. Um, that releases oxytocin within the brains of the infants and also in the brain of the mother too. And the oxytocin for the mother promotes production of milk. It promotes the attachment system. It promotes like um, the body to um, actually empathize with the child um, and promotes care behaviors as well. So an experiment that they did with rats was to inject virgin rats with oxytocin and then expose them to rat pups and they'd start mothering the rat pups immediately. Now, oxytocin sensitizes the opiate system. So the pleasure, the love, the loving, uh, pleasurable sensation that we get when we are closely attached, we feel safe. The feeling that you get when you're being held in your mother's arms as a child, that really like deep, comforting, um, relaxing, uh, safe feeling, that feeling seems to be mediated by our opiate system, our endorphins. 
and oxytocin, which you get from the physical touch, it sensitizes that, so it makes opiates more effective in our brain. Now, opiates are the most strong and like most widely used and most effective painkillers that we have. So morphine, heroin, all of these things are opiates. They activate the same system, which is responsible for our loving attachments and the feeling of being loved and safe. Um, and that makes a lot of sense for me about why we would be uh, sort of reduced, our pain would reduce as a result of that real safe connection. If pain is representing like a damage or potential threat to the physical integrity of the body. And when we're separated from our parents, we die. If we are really connected, um, then that would be a painkiller because we are no longer our physical integrity is being less threatened because we're safe. Hmm. And so if someone were to, obviously, when you're a baby, you don't always remember everything, this, this sensory things that you remember. Mm. But if someone were to say, you know, have that attachment, because the way I look at attachment is, is in, a, in a very theoretical way in terms of secure attachment and insecure attachments and mm -hmm. disorganized attachments. And so would you say sort of if, if someone has an insecure attachment or a disorganized attachment or a disrupted attachment that could have knock-on effects later in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I'm not so sure yet how um, disorganized attachment and the different attachment categories that there are affect pain experiences or affect this opiate system. I haven't looked into that. I've looked at those attachment styles and how they influence further attachment relationships in the future, but I'm not quite sure how they uh, influence pain. However, uh, when you say that we don't remember these things, we don't remember these things explicitly. They're not available to our declarative memory meaning that we can't describe them. When we're asked, do you remember anything before you're five years old? Most people, 95% of people, I don't know the exact stats, but don't remember those early experiences to their conscious accessible memory that they can describe with language. But your body remembers. And this is because we don't really have language um, before the age of two. The very first developmental processes that are occurring from baby to around two years old are mainly body-based and feeling-based. We're not born with thoughts. We're not born able to describe our experience, but we are certainly born able to perceive our experience from a felt sense. We know that we, when we, we cry, certain things happen. We cry because we feel uncomfortable, something is distressing. We try and express that through a physical expression, often crying or smiling. And I think what is set up in those very fundamental, feeling something uncomfortable, expressing it, and then what the caregiver does in response to that expression, sets up so much about how we relate to our own bodies and ourselves and also other people's emotional expressions in the future. Um, in a way, it sort of sets this blueprint up so that, you know, when you are old in a way, you sort of expect this blueprint to, to happen with other relationships. Yeah, completely, um, yeah because you learn that that's how the world works right and Absolutely. yeah and when it doesn't work that way that's where i feel like there's this dissonance yeah so it's good yeah. or so let's 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 be a little bit more specific about that dissonance then so um let's just take the baby who is crying and let's say for example um the mother has um has had previous trauma where they have been perhaps abused um, and they have been crying out in that and the cry has been punished, right? 
don't you fucking cry, stop crying now. So two things happen there within that situation. One, in order to cope with being abused or experiencing trauma, your brain does something that's extremely intelligent, which is to disassociate from the sensations coming from the body because that's too overwhelming, that's, that's creating too much suffering. So you, you take your right brain perception of the body and you go, and emotions as well, and you go, nope, that's not possible right now, so I'm gonna go and distract myself. And there's, again, that's actually the opiate system, but it's a real release of the opiate system that causes that dissociation shutdown. And that creates a separation from those areas of the brain um, with conscious awareness. So you're not aware of your, how your body is feeling in terms of its emotions. You're not aware of what your body is expressing in terms of nonverbal signals. You're just aware that perhaps when you touch towards that, you need to distract yourself or you, you feel uncomfortable, you need to run away. Okay, so the mother doesn't have availability to her own internal like feelings of sadness or distress in that way. Now, when the baby cries, because we have a, a mirror neuron system and the mirror neuron system, it, it resonates with other people, right? So if you see somebody uh, running, your mirror neuron system in your brain will be active as if you were running, but it's just the, the, brain, the neurons in the motor cortex simulating the running that you're observing. So the way in which our mirror neuron system works is we empathize with, or we resonate with um, like physical expression, movement expression and emotional expression. Um, so when the baby cries, it activates that same part of the mother's brain via her mirror neuron system that once experienced that trauma and the crying. So she is empathizing with the baby's crying, but it's triggering her previous trauma and she doesn't wanna have access to that. So she's gonna to behave towards the baby's crying as if it was her own in the same way. Stop crying, don't do that because it's making me too overwhelmed and I won't be able to cope. Um, and so then the baby learns that crying is not useful. Crying makes my needs are not met when I cry. So this crying, actually, it disconnects me from my attachment relationships. And so it's, it's actually something that is dangerous for me. And this then causes the baby to have that same kind of form, formulation of my crying is not useful, I need to suppress it. But it's it's imprinted into the way in which they orientate from a very early age. Mm. Um, so that would be a typical case of like um, avoidant attachment. Um, we could talk about like a, a more ambivalent attachment where sometimes the mother is available, sometimes not. But I think it kind of fits that same kind of structure of how the mother is relating to her own emotional state dictates what she's able to see and how she behaves towards the baby's emotional expressions, which then imprints within the child a relationship to their own expressions and their body. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, it's just fascinating to think about it in that perspective, because there is so much connectivity between the two mm -hmm. that we sometimes don't always appreciate. Mm so much like there is no emotions that we don't experience in the body that don't have a, an expression associated with that a series of movements it's fascinating honestly i really i really think it is absolutely fascinating and i'm um, the third podcast episode on this just this alone <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i'm quite keen to bring it back to to pain actually yeah um is there any questions that you wanted to ask before we well, one of the things you mentioned was, was trauma. And so I always think about trauma as like a little T and a big T. Okay? Mm. And so in my, in the work that I do now with sort of people coming in with that persistent pain, a lot of them are coming in with a lot of history of that trauma. So capital T trauma. Mm. So I'm wondering what that relationship between trauma and pain is mm. and sort of that interrospection. Mm -hmm. 
within it. So um, my understanding of this, and I'm going to go off my understanding um, through my own subjective uh, personal reflections, also what I observe in my patients, I don't have that much specific evidence to draw upon for this. So I just want to caveat that before I start going into this. Um, so let's come back to that experience of trauma being directed towards the body. Um, and that, that body then becomes something that is um, needed to be dissociated from. And what specifically what you're dissociating from is so often the interior signals of the body, the interoceptive signals. So the feelings of, um, if we're talking about the very basic feelings, we're talking about feelings of pressure, stretch, uh, gut function changes, heart rate changes, um, the temperature changes, chemical changes within the body, these things that are mediated by our nociceptive system and our sensory systems. Um, so these form the milieu of different sensations that are coming in from our bodies. Um, they form uh, a connection primarily with the right-hand side of our brain. They come up through the basal ganglia, which is associated with our uh, affect and also our basic physiological functioning, regulation of our internal organs and regulation of our temperature, uh, breathing, those kind of things. So those sensations to the body come up through these basic areas, activate our autonomic nervous system, change our physiology here. Then they go up into the secondary processes, which are the emotional processes, the limbic system, where we have things like our primary emotional systems, like fear, sadness, joy, anger. Um, and then they come up through into our cognitive architecture. Um, which gives us the ability to form language and thought processes around these physical sensations here. Now, that's a crude division, but I think it's useful for this idea that I'm um, trying to get across. Now, when there has been trauma, especially if that trauma has been directed towards the body, we do not want to have access to that physical signals coming in from the body because it's overwhelming, it's too much. So we are able to disconnect our right hemisphere from our left and we're able to suppress these sensations from reaching cognitive conscious awareness. And so when that has happened, you don't just um, separate your awareness from your emotional self, but you also separate your awareness from the actual ability to feel these normal sensations in the body. So I see a lot of chronic pain patients who are coming in and you're doing your assessment, they've been in pain for a very long time and you get them to stand up and you're starting to press into their body, palpate, see what it feels like in their bodies. And you start to ask them, or I like to ask my patients, what do you feel in your body? And often they'll just say, it's pain or nothing. And what that represents is an extremely crude understanding of what the actual incoming signals are from the body. And if their understanding doesn't have a vocabulary around it, they can't describe the difference between pressure, stretch, tension, contraction, relaxation, all of these like physical primary sensations that are incoming from the body. If they can't describe it, it indicates that they don't have the ability to discern those sensations. Likely because they've had to ignore their bodies because they've experienced trauma in the past. And that sets up this system where your body has to scream at you really loudly to be heard. And it screams in pain. Um, I, does that answer your question? Totally, absolutely. And it's, I'm drawing on what you just said, where you said the body has to scream at you, you know, to be heard. And often that's what I find that patients are doing there 
metaphorically screening for help, for intervention, to access services that mm. they felt they feel that they're not being able to access mm. or not being listened to, mm -hmm. not being heard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so often how that comes across to me is this sort of all or nothing scenario where I'm in pain all the time or in this sort of amplified pain mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and this need for someone else to fix it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if that doesn't so happen, yeah. and if that doesn't happen, it's like, well, I'm not getting treatment. Mm -hmm. It's like actually being in the room is the treatment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's be, let's again, let's dive into that a little bit because that's such a good point you raised. So if we come back to our, our conversation about the opiate system and the feeling of being attached, um, people in pain often have like a, uh, especially if they're experiencing persistent pain, a dysregulation to their internal opiate system. But they also have, as you've just described, this terrible social situation where they've experienced pain for a long time and perhaps there's no, uh, no longer any physical damage to their bodies. So the MRI scans come back without any kind of positive signs of damage that explains the amount of pain that they're experiencing. Um, and in their social environments at home, they've been experiencing pain for a long time. All the suggestions that the family have made to how they can get rid of it haven't worked. So the family are starting to get annoyed that the person's still in pain. And so people with persistent pain so often exist in this place where they're reaching out for some kind of explanation for why they're suffering so much. And what they're receiving back is going, well, I don't understand, I can't help you. And it's extremely invalidating and it leaves you in a place of real unknown and a real difficulty in orientating action around this pain experience that you're having. And this is why the social relationship between practitioner and patients is so, so important because you can quite literally in the room activate their whole opiate system. You can activate the most powerful painkillers that we know about just by interacting them in a way that allows you to feel like you have a resonating, strong, understanding attachment relationship with each other. And what that would look like is saying, wow, okay, uh, I understand you're in a lot of pain. And I, how is that for you, really? I, I really want to understand this from your perspective. I really want to attempt in my best ability to resonate with what that's like for you. Which as a practitioner is hard. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Trying to see somebody's perspective who is suffering that much and be able to resonate with it so that you can have that real um, safe, validated, trusting relationship with this person that is really going to make the change for them or at least establish trust so you can start to actually, they'll listen to you, requires you to sit with a lot of suffering. <laughs> and that's not easy. Definitely not. And, and I'm glad you said that because I'm sitting in my current position and, you know, it, it's just the system that, it's, 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 it is, that exists in the NHS where you see back-to-back -back patients. Mm. And so being exposed to that continuously, I wonder if, well, what happens as a cumulative effect is by the end of the week, I'm done. Mm. Like I'm done talking to people, I'm done. I just want to sort of isolate. And that might not happen for everyone. And I appreciate some people have better coping systems than I do. I wonder, and, and I, I imagine as a practitioner, within, you know, whether you're working privately or in the NHS or a different modality, how as a practitioner do you sort of work with that, that transference essentially that occurs in the mm -hmm repeatedly over and over again mm -hmm. um learning to take care of your own emotions so the most useful uh thing for me that i've, I've clung to within that is actually 
everything that I feel, whether that's a result of the relationship I'm having, is mine. And it is mine, I'm feeling this because it, it reflects something that I have experienced within my life. There is a reason I have the capacity to resonate with this, and that's because I have something like this similar in my own experience. And if that is, and why I found that useful is because then I've taken that and gone, right, I need to sit with that then. I need to learn how to take care of this within myself. What is it in my life that has um, been similar to this experience that I'm feeling now? And what need was not met in my own life? What did I really need when I was experiencing this? And if you're able to answer that question, then the feeling that you experience in the room, if you're experiencing some kind of resonance, some kind of emotion, can lead you directly to the care and the love that need, is needed as a result of that feeling trying to express itself to you. It won't stop you from feeling it, but then the feeling can become an access point to healing each time. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. And it's not something that people talk about often, or at least not in the, in the spheres that I, I, I'm in. And I think as a result, I tend to get very frustrated, I think is the right word. Mm. Not just with myself, but with patients as well, especially when they're not progressing or not, mm. or it doesn't appear like they're trying, because they are. But objectively, you know, they're not adhering to the exercise program that we've established or some of the, or some of the lifestyle suggestions that we, we've agreed on. Mm. And so that's, that's my sort of, that's the way I see it manifesting is I get really mm. frustrated mm. at everything, mm. at me, at the patient, at the system. Um, so it's, it's interesting to hear it from that perspective. Mm. Yeah, so you mentioned at the beginning of our, our chat before we came on to the, the podcast here that you were, one of the things you were struggling with in clinic is patients who do exactly that, who are not necessarily motivated or can't even necessarily understand what goals they're trying to work towards. They just know they're in pain and they know they need some help and they've been sent to you. I don't know if you want to sort of speak a little bit more to that kind of aspect. Yeah, I think, so where I work is, it's almost like the end of the line. So they've mm. tried physiotherapy, or they've been referred to physiotherapy, and it's either too complex or it's too deep-rooted. Um, and so they get referred to, to pain services. And often pain services, at least where I work, is that's the end of the line. There's, there's nothing after that. Mm. Mm. And mm. so from a patient's perspective, it's almost like, okay, this is what's going to work. Mm -hmm. this is it and from from I suppose where I'm sitting it's like okay the, the work is, is shared between us it's it's not me doing the work or you doing the work it's it's an actual collaboration mm. and sometimes when that sort of collaboration isn't sort of met with a reciprocal sort of level of motivation to change mm. or sometimes a want to change, mm. that can get really difficult to manage. Mm. So mm. where people have low motivation, where they have this, almost this stuck, they're just stuck. Mm. Mm. So that's, I think, what, we would, what I was referring to when we were talking earlier, off the mm. podcast. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so um, that's a really good point that you raised, and it's it's present for so many people who get to that point in healthcare, and 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 often that is the, the experience of a lot of people who are suffering persistent pain. Um, and I think there's two things that I'd like to speak to. Let's start with a little like technical neurobiological understanding. We need to think about dopamine in this case. Um, now, dopamine. Again, according to this Archaeology of the Mind book, it says that like, normally we think about dopamine as a reward system. So dopamine gives you that kind of reward that's associated with 
addiction or associated with pleasure. But actually, if you look at the dopamine levels in the brain, when we do like buy a new item or we do like give rats cocaine and they start taking cocaine, the dopamine system is activated most in the lead up to acquiring the object. And it actually reduces its activity massively when the object is acquired. Um, so it's not associated with the pleasure of receiving the object itself, but it's associated with the anticipatory pleasure of seeking the object. So um, we can summarize the system as a seeking system. If we think about that in evolutionary terms, if you put a rat in a novel environment, the first thing that they do is they seek. They search the environment, sniff about all the corners of it to try and discover what's going on in that place so that they can orientate themselves in it. Is this safe? Is this not safe? Is there food here? Is there not food here? Um, so we, in a natural environment that we, is relatively unfamiliar, we are hunter-gatherers fundamentally, so seeking is such an important drive for looking over that hill, like what is going to be over there? Is there going to be a food source that I desperately need? And this is motivating intrinsically, hugely motivating. Um, and the dopamine system activates our whole musculoskeletal system for movement in our environment. And, and the antithesis of this is Parkinson's disease, right? Dopamine is disrupted in Parkinson's disease and you lose the ability, your motor function and your motivation to seek new experiences. Um, so you can learn if you're experiencing pain persistently for a long time, for example, you've got to the point that you've tried everything and nothing has worked. You can learn that this seeking that initially motivates you to seek help is useless. And once you've learned that this seeking for help is useless, and I think the structure of that also plays into what happens with these people in childhood, seeking for help is often useless. You go into a state of not motivation, but shut down, hopelessness. And hopelessness is, if we had a narrative for it, it means that I do not believe anything will help me at all. And until you've, you've either had them recognize that that is a belief that they hold or discuss with them feelings of hopelessness and, and work with the fact that they may not actually believe that anything's going to help, trying to come up with a goal or give advice is just going to be hopeless. It's not going to help at all because this person never believes it's going to help because they've never learned that actually these things are able to make them feel how they want to feel, you know? Um, and at, on the flip side of that, hopelessness is also parasympathetic activation. It's that shutdown, play dead response. So the whole physiology is down regulated in a hopeless state as well. So they literally can't mobilize their adrenaline. They can't mobilize their energy systems to be able to do something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that has to be tackled before you're going to get them to do exercises or anything. That shifted so much in my head. It also explains why I get ghosted before I go on a date. But <laughs> Wait, I don't understand that connection. Can you? <laughs> no, this is a joke that you were talking about sort of like that seeking behavior, driving the dopamine. So whenever you arrange that day, like, yeah, I'm done. I don't need that. I, I, I you know, I've got the hit. I'm good. Let's move on to yeah. someone else. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. God, it explains so many, so much behavior around dating apps these days, for sure. I mean, we need to get you another podcast, uh, like your own podcast, rather, because you can apply this to so many things. Um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> you also mentioned there was a second thing. So it was the the, the dopamine levels. I wonder what the second thing was. Yeah, so the second thing is that in order to um, uh, come up with a uh, goal for your future or what you want to, to have in order to motivate yourself, 
you have to be able to project yourself into a positive future in your own imagination because the goal is future orientated. Um, so actually, I think for a lot of chronic pain patients, focusing on a goal um, at the beginning of a kind of place where they, they don't know what they want anymore is useless. And actually building the capacity to imagine a positive future is extremely useful. Now, in order to build the capacity to imagine yourself in a future, you have to build the capacity to sense yourself first. You have to build an internal representation of you. And the way in which you do that is you connect somebody with their body. Because the body is a direct information system about what is going on for you. And it informs our autobiographical memory. So it comes back to, okay, what do you do in the room with that person who's hopeless, who is, you're not able to use these kind of normal things that are promoted in pain management, which is you've got to have a goal, you've got to work towards that goal with graded exposure, gradually building up to get to the place that you want to be to operate in society as a working normal human being, normal human being. So if you can't, that person can't see that, in the room with them, they can feel pain. They can perceive their own bodies in the present. And so I found that working with rebuilding their sense of themselves in a way that is non-fearful, rebuilding a sense that they have a body, it lays the foundation for being able to project themselves into the future. So I can do it with you right now. So I would go, okay, so Sylvan, can you feel if you raise your arm up in the air, just describe to me what you feel as you do that in terms of like the physical sensation. Um, heaviness. Mm -hmm. um, pressure in the shoulder joint. Where? Um, sort of right in the sort of the G8 sort of joint. Mm -hmm. Okay. So at the top, in the middle, at the bottom of the joint, do you feel pressure? Um, like deep, sort of in the front, but deep. It's also because I did a chest day the other day as well. So that doesn't... Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, and if I hold my arm long enough, I'll start to feel sort of pins and needles. So if you hold your arm long enough, you will start to feel pins and needles. Mm. Right? So that's obviously something you've learned in the past, that if I hold my arm up, and you're predicting that in your future. Mm -hmm. But the actual present sensation right now that you've described is you're aware of a sense of pressure deep in the front of your shoulder. Yes. Okay. Are you aware of the sensation of blood and coldness in your hand? So blood draining away and the temperature change in your hand. If I think about it, I am now. Uh-huh, right. And are you aware of the sensation of muscles contracting into the top of your shoulder on the left-hand side and going up into your neck towards the back of your head? Again, when I put, if I put my attention there, then I'm more aware of it. Right, exactly. Okay, so put your arm down. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm doing there is using my language to direct your attention internally. Asking you the question, what do you feel? gives me an understanding of what vocabulary around you, you have around your internal sensations. So you clearly understand the sensation of pressure. You clearly understand the sensation of going to the gym and post-exercise soreness. You clearly understand the sensation of pins and needles, numbness, because of your previous experience with your arm going up in the air. Um, and when prompted, you're able to perceive the sensations of muscles contracting in the traps to hold your arms up there. Also blood draining away from your hands and the change in temperature that's associated with that. Once I direct your attention towards that. Yeah. So what I'm doing is I'm connecting you directly with the internal world of, of your body. And I'm understanding that you actually have quite a good differentiation between the internal sensations of your body. Now, often with people who've experienced pain for a long time, because suffering is present in the body, you don't want to feel your body at all. So you direct your attention away from it. 
and the internal sensations become muddy. I cannot tell the difference between pressure, stretch, contraction, relaxation. They just—it's just pain or nothing. That's it. So with somebody who's not motivated, with somebody who's not giving, like following a treatment plan that's goal directed, I'd always start with reconnecting them with the ability to feel their bodies. And then usually I, uh, because pain is also associated with tension most of the time, then teach them how to relax their muscles consciously. Because so often, as soon as they let go of a little bit of tension, get them to breathe deeply, breathe out, relax, or even palpate themselves, breathing in. Yeah, I can feel my muscle becomes harder. Breathe out, relax. Oh, oh yeah, that's a little bit easier. And if you're able in that room to get them to feel that they can make a change to something like muscle tension, they have agency over their own body. And that results in a small change to something that's a bit more pleasurable. Then you set up the structure of being the goal-directed action. Right? So then they suddenly have some sense of agency, some sense of control over this pain that they're coming to you to help you fix. Something they can do in their own time that's easy, doesn't require any equipment, nothing. And they start to be able to build within themselves this idea that, oh, okay, actually, I have some ability to change the internal state of my body as a result of sensing it. Do you see what I mean? Totally. And I, and I really like that you use the, the concept of having the people have a sense of the control of that agency, because that's, that's what I see a lot of, is that disconnect from the agency, from feeling you know, the disconnect from being able to control that level of pain or that, that input, mm. where it's this huge thing, it's amplified, it's constant. Um, and so I really like that exercise. I'm gonna be taking to that, I'm gonna be taking that to my, to my, to my work on Monday morning. <laughs> so let's maybe do the little relaxation exercise then. Okay. So first you need to be able to perceive where you're experiencing tension. So I'd like you now to sit back and maybe just press into your own shoulders as well. Give yourself a prod or a poke. Yeah, okay. oh, yeah. your Wait facial that. expression tells me that you found a place that's tender and tight, great. So I'm glad you're crossing over your right or right hand to the left because that's gonna make relaxation of the left arm much easier. Um, so now once you feel that, I want you to feel the texture of it. And because you've had osteopathic training, this will be much easier for you than the lay person for sure. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So find the point that feels the most contracted within that shoulder. Mm -hmm. Now take a deep breath and contract it further, increase the level of tension. So you can feel that muscle tensing up. Often this is way easier than relaxation for patients. So they can get into further tension. From this point of real tension in the shoulder, as you breathe out, try and relax your whole body. Go as floppy as possible. Good, and I want you to start to notice as we do this a couple more times, whether you feel that the tension level or the the tenderness level de decreases in that place you're pressing. So let's breathe in again, increasing tension on the in-breath. Noticing that feeling of tension. Breathing out. So letting go of the whole body and maybe the left arm as well, if you can. What do you feel? So when point where my fingers are, where I'm feeling that point of the most sort of tension. When I breathe in, it's almost like there's two surfaces. So there's the top surface where my skin is, where my clothes mm -hmm. are, and where I'm breathing. And the, uh, underneath that, where the, the muscle feels tight. Mm -hmm. And so when I breathe in, it feels like the muscle almost comes to the surface more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then when I visualize my whole body sort of letting go, it's almost like there's this space created between them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
and what happens to the the internal sensation so the pain is amplified is that what you mean so the pain is amplified when i breathe in and i'm mm -hmm. i'm also pressing down a bit more when i breathe in Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. And when I breathe out, because I'm relaxing my whole body, I'm also relaxing my hand. So I'm not mm -hmm. digging in as much. So not only is this hand sort of relaxing, but the muscle relaxes as well. And it just eases. And so that pain level decreases. Mm -hmm. Okay. And does it change in quality too? So when you say quality... So often when you press into muscles, they give a kind of deep aching type pain. And if you ask patients, what color is that pain? What shape is that pain? Mm. I've noticed that the sharper the pain is, the more you get that kind of activation of the, the D fibers of the nociceptive system that are responsible for that sharp pinprick type pain, the sharper the object they describe describing stars or triangles or really sharp objects and they're usually red mm. the the kind of c fiber mediated pain that kind of deep achy pain that you're likely experiencing when you're pressing into the muscles then tends to be like rounder there's a round element to the shape that patients describe but maybe with a slightly pointy element as well mm. <laughs> And it's also a deeper red, sometimes purple for people. And the shift is generally towards a blue color and a shape that is much more diffuse in its edges. So like the, the edges of the shape become blurred, the whole picture becomes blue um, and it's a much uh, more comfortable sensation. So for me, the way I describe that is like from an achy pain to a simple pressure. Um, and I'm wondering if you can have kind of access to any of those descriptions for yourself. So for me, it felt um, sort of more bunched up, maybe mm -hmm. not a sphere, but almost in a sphere, it was almost bunched up. Mm -hmm. And then when I let go, it became flatter. And in a way, yeah, more diffused, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And let's look at those gestures that you made. So we know that muscle knots or like tender points within muscles are areas of the myofibrils contracting, right? And they quite literally bunch up. And when you were relaxing, the gesture you did was this, mm. which is representing precisely what is happening in the muscle itself. The muscle fibers are going from a state of contraction to a state of elongation, which feels exactly like they're letting go, right? And elongated. Yeah. So those primary sensations that you described just then are the most accurate of the physiological change that's happening in the body. And so that's why that question of what the subjective quality of the sensation is, is so important is because it so often gets to the closest description to what is actually changing within the person's physiology, rather than a kind of more meta awareness of like how you're uh, thinking about the pain or how you're thinking the pain should change or how like you're perceiving the skin over the muscles kind of moving right this is a bit more of a kind of meta understanding rather than the sensation that's directly coming in from the muscles itself yeah wow that's completely changed how I can ask about somebody's pain in a less sort of academic type of way and more of a sort of embodied, just feel what you feel kind of way. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, and when you're connecting somebody with their embodied feel what you feel kind of way, you are reconnecting them with their body, activating that connection with their nociceptive system, also the right hemisphere, which is integrating again their body into their self-awareness. And you can then, once you've integrated the body in a way that feels safe, because you're looking at the primary sensations, not emotional content at all, just the, the literal physical changes, that gives a perfect gateway into being able to look at, okay, if you can regulate your physical sensations, you can also regulate the responses that occur as a result of emotional changes. If I'm extremely scared, that's a freeze response, that's tension in my body. Oh, I know how to get rid of tension. 
okay, let me let it go. And that can then also regulate the emotional states. Please tell me some of this is in your course because I'm so looking forward to it. It is. Yeah, yeah definitely. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah, 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 definitely. So we'll teach you how to actually apply this to patients a lot. So I really want to make it very practical. Definitely. And I really enjoy that practical element of it as well because it's, it's you feel, what you, you know, you feel it directly. And I'm wondering then, like, you know, we talked a little bit about the course in the beginning, but what are you hoping thing? Sorry, I'll rephrase that. What are you hoping people will get out from attending the course? Yeah, that's a really good question. So what I'm hoping is that when people get come out of the course, they are recognizing the separation between themselves and their patients. And so often in what I see in osteopathic practice is that we make assumptions about the patient's um, perceptions. So when we're palpating, we go, oh yes, these, these muscles are tight or these joints are restricted and I feel these physical changes going on in the body to their function, to their structure. And we are making a, a casual assumption that the patient is also able to understand that this is happening within their own body. And the assumption is also that if I make changes to those structure and those functions, that that patient is going to perceive their cells themselves in a different way. They are going to get less pain. Now, if pain is perception, we're assuming that the pain is going to change as a result of us changing the structure. That's just not the case. <laughs> structure, as we've talked about, can change without our perception at all being involved. And so what I hope people get out of the course is an ability to separate in their own minds the structural findings that we get through our palpation, through our observation of movement, through the looking at somebody's functioning, these real physical changes that are occurring within somebody's body, and recognizing that they are a separate process to the patient's subjective understanding of their own body. We are perceiving their structure, which is useful, they are perceiving their own bodies. And um, I need, because it's so valuable in my practice to suddenly engage with, okay, my role is not necessarily to change their structure, though that is something that's really useful to help this person function in the world. My goal is to help this person's perspective and perception of their own selves in their environment to change. They're coming with pain. They want to get rid of their pain. Pain is a perception, we need to change their perceptions. And how you change somebody's perceptions is through getting them to direct their attention, just like you did, back towards themselves. So I hope that people come out with an ability to, to perceive those things differently, have a framework for understanding perception, have a framework for understanding the structure, and then interact with their patients in a way where they're sewing together the, the discrepancies. So, so often in clinic, I go, wow, your muscles are tight as hell. Can you perceive that they're tight? And they go, no, it feels normal. And I'm going, right, okay, you, you are not able to perceive your own internal structure. And if I want to make long-term changes to your life, I need you to go out in the world being able to perceive the changes that are happening within your own structure. And then be, have agency over those and be able to control those. Yeah. So I'm hoping that people will come out with the ability to, to understand that we can do that as, as osteopaths and manual health practitioners, providers, instructors, whatever, we can do that. Yeah, and, and that, that was my other thing that I was going to ask. It's not just open to osteopaths, so it mm. sounds like it's open to other sort of modalities or people coming from other, other modalities. Yeah, for sure. So um, it's not for the layperson. It's going to be quite technical, a lot of the stuff that we've gone through. So I expect you, if you're going to apply to this course, to have some kind of clinical training in medicine. So whether that's like you're, you've done um, massage, whether you've done like exercise courses, personal trainers, even uh, physiotherapists, osteopaths, doctors, those kind of people. Especially if you're working with people with touch and you're trying to change people's pain in your practice, then this is who you should be uh well thank you about coming to my course amazing 
and I'll definitely put all the sort of the, the information in, in the description boxes below so that people yeah, can thank you. Um, and it runs in September. So I'm nice. I'm looking forward to it. If only if this was just a snapshot of what you can be covering in this course, mm -hmm. I can't imagine what you'll be able to cover in two days. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, so I'm really I, looking forward to it. Um, I've run it once in a, in a practice before and it was it was really enjoyable for all the people taking part. It's not just going to be you absorbing like a sponge and me giving you loads of factual information. No, it's fully integrated into learning about yourself, you know, and then how to treat others. And that's so true to how you are as a person, but also in your teaching style. It's never just you standing up, delivering a lecture. It's very integrated. It's very reciprocal. It's very welcoming. And I've sat in your lecture, so I know I'm not just <laughs> making this stuff up. <laughs> yeah that's um, right <laughs> and so if people sort of are wondering where to find you how to get in touch where can they do that where can they find you yeah so um my website is www.finehealth.co.uk fine spelt like fine brown which is the last uh, letters of my name so f-e-i-n um so my contact details are on that website or you can contact me via my email address directly, which I'll give to you so you can put in the links below. Um, Perfect. Yeah, and thank you so much for taking the time out to do the sequel. I look forward to the threequel coming up soon. <laughs> yeah, likewise, yeah, indeed. And then we'll work our way up to like Avengers Endgame or something. <laughs> Sounds good to me, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we can actually bring patients in for the Avengers Endgame, have more like a team kind of based approach. <laughs> I like it, as long as we defeat Thanos, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> Thanks so much, Josh. Yeah, no problem. Thanks so very much, appreciate it.